Welcome to Music History Monday for October 30th, 2023. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Franz Schubert, An Unfinished Symphony, An Unfinished Life. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark October 30th, 1822, 201 years ago today, as being the day on which Franz Schubert began what is now known as his Symphony No. 8 in B minor, the Unfinished Symphony. Lost just months after Schubert completed the two movements that make up the unfinished, the symphony was heard for the first time in 1865, 43 years after its composition, and 37 years after Schubert's death. A fable agreed upon. One of the many clever statements, or in this case a question, credited to Napoleon Bonaparte is, quote, What is history but a fable agreed upon? Unquote. It's a good question for a despot who was intent on creating his own version of history. However, it is a question that applies as well to our contemporary view of Ludwig van Beethoven and how we have come to believe his music was perceived in his own time. Today, Beethoven's mature symphonies, meaning numbers three through nine, are rightly perceived as representing his own personal struggles and revolutionary times. Our mistake, the fable agreed upon, occurs when we assume that Beethoven's contemporaries believe the same thing about his mature symphonies. Because you know what? They did not. For Beethoven's symphonic contemporaries, the first two decades of the 19th century were about the discovery and study of Haydn's and Mozart's late symphonies. The musical style of such well-known, even famous at the time, symphonic composers as Carl Friedrich Zelter, Jean-Paul Richter, Karl Maria von Weber, Ludwig Spohr, Edelbert Geirowitz, Ferdinand Ries, Andrea Romberg, and Peter Winter was firmly based on the classical models of Haydn and Mozart. According to the musicologist Nicholas Temperley, these composers and others like them, quote, reached a classical musical ideal to which Beethoven's mature art seemed an intrusive irrelevance. Posterity has been unkind to the symphonies of the aforementioned composers, symphonies that in their time were performed much more frequently than Beethoven's. It was only once that Beethoven's symphonies came to be understood and appreciated for the masterworks that they are, and that process took a generation, that those of his more conservative, more 
classically oriented contemporaries were relegated to almost total obscurity. Today, they are the stuff of PhD dissertations and scholarly papers, the surest indicators of utter irrelevance. With one exception, the symphonies of Franz Schubert. Franz Schubert, 1797 to 1827. Franz Peter Schubert was born in Vienna on January 31, 1797. It was in Vienna that he died on November 19, 1828, aged 31 years, 9 months, and 20 days. Franz was one of four surviving Schubert children. Our Franz was the beloved pet of the family, and from every account that has come down to us, he was a small, plump, and endearingly sweet child. His growth spurt hardly kicked in. The full-grown Schubert was 1.57 meters in height, about 5 foot 1, and as his portraits attest, he never lost his cherubic appearance. A wonderful description of the adult Schubert was written by his friend Anselm Hutenbrenner. Quote, Schubert's outward appearance was anything but striking or presupposing. He was short of stature, with a full round face, and was rather stout. His forehead was very beautifully domed. Because of his short sight, he always wore spectacles, which he did not take off even during sleep. Dress was a thing in which he took no interest whatsoever. He disliked bowing and scraping, and listening to flattering talk about himself he found downright nauseating." Unquote. At the age of nine, he began formal musical studies with a local organist by the name of Michael Holzer. The lessons with Holzer included piano, violin, organ, singing, and harmony. Of his young charge, Holzer said, quote, If I wished to instruct him in anything fresh, he already knew it. Consequently, I eventually stopped giving him actual lessons, but merely conversed with him and watched him with silent astonishment." Unquote. At the age of 11, in 1808, Schubert was admitted to the Imperial and Royal City College, a first-rate Viennese boarding school. Among those who auditioned him for admission was the music director for the Viennese court, none other than Antonio Salieri, 1750-1825. Yes, that Salieri pupil of the great Christoph Willibald Gluck, friend of the great Joseph Haydn, rival of the incredible Wolfgang Mozart, vocal music tutor of the irksome Ludwig van Beethoven, and future composition teacher of the extraordinary Franz Liszt. And despite the calumny leveled against him by that movie, a fine composer and a fine and upstanding person. Eventually, Salieri took over the supervision of Schubert's musical education, a relationship that would extend beyond Schubert's college years. 
Schubert's first masterwork was the song Gretchen am Spinrade, which he composed on October 19, 1814, when he was 17 years old. It was art songs for voice and piano, German-language Kunstlieder, like Gretchen am Spinrade, that brought Schubert to the compositional table. He cut his teeth writing songs. His first masterworks were songs. It was by writing songs that Schubert learned how to convey laser-like literary and expressive meaning with estimable brevity. And it was through writing songs that Schubert learned how to exploit his unparalleled gifts as a melodist. Here's an understatement. Franz Schubert wrote a lot of great music in a short amount of time. According to the musicologist Donald Grout, quote, without wide public recognition, sustained only by the love of a few friends and his family, constantly struggling against illness and poverty, Schubert composed ceaselessly, unquote. Yeah, in Schubert's own words, quote, I work every morning. When I have finished one piece, I begin another, unquote. True that, in the last 16 years of his life, between the ages of 15 and 31, Schubert produced, among other works, nine symphonies, 10 orchestral overtures, 22 piano sonatas, six masses, 17 operas, over 1,000 works for solo piano and piano four hands, 637 songs, about 145 choral works, and 45 chamber works, including 13 string quartets and one string quintet. Altogether, he composed some 1,600 works during the last 16 years of his life. That's 100 works a year, or one every 3.65 days for 16 years. Schubert died of complications from syphilis at the age of 31. On his tombstone was inscribed words written by the poet Franz Grillparzer. We quote, Music here has buried a rich treasure, but still fairer hopes." Unquote. Of the almost total obscurity Schubert's music suffered in his lifetime, one could make almost the same statement. Quote, his many rich treasures were buried by the world around him, and for his own music he had fairer hopes. Unquote. Schubert's Early Symphonies Schubert's symphonies, numbers 1 through 5, were composed between 1813 and 1816, when he was between 16 and 19 years old. They are marvelous pieces, in which Schubert makes up with sheer talent and imagination whatever he might have lacked in age and experience. They are also classical symphonies in every technical and expressive sense. The influence of Haydn and Mozart 
is as obvious as the nose on Barbara Streisand's face. And despite the fact that Schubert's Symphony No. 1 of 1813 was composed after Beethoven completed his eighth in 1812, there is scant, if any, evidence of Beethoven's influence to be heard in Schubert's first five symphonies. Confusion, illness, and an unfinished symphony. First, the confusion. Numerical confusion, that is. Schubert completed his sixth symphony in 1818. Over the next couple of years, he sketched a number of symphonic movements in D major, none of which came to anything. In August of 1821, he began a draft for yet another symphony, this one in E major. He almost completed the sketch and then abandoned this child of his imagination as well, either too bored to finish it or, more likely, suffering from a crisis of compositional language. Hmm. Should I continue to compose symphonies along the tasteful, classically inspired lines of my first through fifth? Or should I grasp the Beethovenian expressive gestalt that I began to explore in my sixth symphony and squeeze it for all it's worth? Or should I try to find some Schubertian medium within the extremes?" Unquote. In the end, Schubert couldn't decide, and consequently, he left his E major symphony incomplete and unplayable. Many years later, after the impoverished Schubert had died and been subsequently deified, oh, don't we love how that works, the catalogers moved in and decided to call this unplayable piece Schubert's Symphony No. 7. Well, in fact, there is no Schubert's Seventh. It doesn't exist. Like cookies left for Santa Claus or a play setting for Elijah at the Passover Seder table, we just sort of pretend that Schubert's Seventh Symphony is out there somewhere and that we should be prepared in case it decides to drop by. On October 30th, 1822, 201 years ago today, Schubert began yet another symphony, this one cast in the key of B minor. Having completed the first two movements to his great satisfaction, he arranged to have the manuscript scores for those two movements presented to the Styrian Musical Society of Graz in gratitude for having been elected into the society. Having completed those two superb opening movements, Schubert began the third movement, completing its first 20 measures. And then he stopped and left this symphony unfinished as well, for reasons that for many appear inexplicable. But they are not inexplicable. And all we need to do is look at Schubert's private life for an explanation as to why he abandoned this symphony. Getting to know you. During his all too short life, Schubert expressed genuine interest in only two women. His piano student, the Countess Caroline Esterhazy, and the soprano Therese Grobe. 
But in neither case did Schubert's interest extend to matrimony. In fact, he was bisexual, with homosexuality being his dominant sexual orientation. In fact, the stigma attached to homosexuality in Schubert's Vienna would explain many of his behavioral patterns, his mood swings and depression, and his almost complete dependence on male friends for housing, emotional, and financial support. These friends of Schubert's were a fascinating mix of young minor nobles, artists, and fellow musicians. What they all had in common was a ferocious dedication to their Schrammel, or Little Mushroom, as they called their Franz. However, there was one so-called friend Schubert would well have done without, and that was someone named Franz von Schober, 1796-1882. Von Schober had been a friend of Schubert's since 1814, when they were both 17. Where Schubert was short and plump, poor, and socially introverted, von Schober was tallish, good-looking, had family money in his pocket, and was an unabashed party boy. His vices of choice, along with Schubert's music, were poetry, alcohol, and male prostitutes, in no particular order. And it is von Schober who was blamed by Schubert's other friends for leading their little Franz down the path to perdition by providing Schubert with the prostitute, very likely an underaged boy, who gave him syphilis. Of course, Schubert desperately wanted to be led down the path to perdition, if not to disease, and his relationship with von Schober inspired more than a little jealousy on the part of his other friends. For example, after his death, Schubert's friend, Josef Kenner, wrote, quote, Anyone who knew Schubert knows how powerfully the craving for pleasure dragged his soul down to the sewer of moral degradation, and how highly he valued the utterances of friends he respected. Schubert attracted, among other friends, a seductively amiable and brilliant young man who won a lasting and pernicious influence over Schubert's honest susceptibility. By Schubert's seducer, I mean Franz von Schober, under the guise of the most amiable sociability and even engaging affection there reigned in this whole von Schober family a deep moral depravity. He was willing to tolerate no religion, no morals, no restraint." Unquote. Schubert biographer Brian Newbold writes, quote, Schober was a work-shy hedonist, notable for sensual rather than intellectual pursuits, who settled in no employment." Unquote. In other words, he was a bum, a jobless rake. Schubert almost certainly was infected with syphilis during one of his pleasure jaunts with Franz von Schober during the late summer or early fall of 1822. On October 30, 1822, unaware that he was infected, 
Schubert began composing what would be the first two movements of his next symphony, his eighth symphony, the unfinished symphony in B minor. The first symptoms of the disease appeared in the late fall of 1822 and became pronounced by January of 1823. Schubert was 25 years old and he was terrified as the disease took hold and began to chart its agonizing course. Periods of remission were followed by periods of painful lymphatic swelling, pustules, rashes, hair loss, lesions in the mouth and throat, debilitating muscle aches, and so forth. Depression and despair accompanied the periods of relapse. It soon became clear to pretty much everyone involved, Schubert, his doctors, and his friends, that it was unlikely he'd live for very long. Back then, to October and November of 1822, those months that saw Schubert compose the two movements that would forever after be known as his Symphony No. 8, the unfinished Symphony in B minor. Well, of course Schubert stopped work on the B minor Symphony during the late fall of 1822. And of course he had no heart to return to it once the initial shock of his condition had worn off. The symphony represented before, a time of his life that ended abruptly with his fatal diagnosis. Lost and Found The two extant movements of Schubert's unfinished symphony disappeared in early 1823 and were assumed to have been lost forever. They were discovered 42 years later in 1865 in the Austrian city of Graz. Here's what happened. Back in early 1823, the recently diagnosed Franz Schubert entrusted the manuscripts to his friend Josef Hutenbrenner. 1796 to 1882, who was to deliver them to the Styrian Musical Society in Graz. But Hutenbrenner, a serious Schubert groupie, had no intention of turning such a treasure over to the society. So without Schubert's knowledge, he kept the scores. At some point, Josef Hutenbrenner turned the manuscripts over to his brother, Anselm Hutenbrenner for safekeeping, and thank heavens he did. In 1848, Josef Hutenbrenner's maid used Schubert's manuscript of the second and third acts of his opera, Claudine von Villabella, as kindling. It was the only extant copy of the opera, and the second and third acts were lost forever up Josef Hutenbrenner's chimney there in Graz. In 1865, in a chest of drawers in Anselm Hutenbrunner's house, Schubert's manuscript for the first two movements of a B minor symphony was discovered by the Viennese conductor Johann von Herbeck, 1831-1877, who was there searching for just such lost Schubertian treasures. A treasure found? Herbeck conducted the premiere of the symphony, or symphonic torso, as it were, in Vienna on a concert sponsored by the Society for the Friends of Music on December 17, 1865. 
That premiere occurred 43 years after the symphony's composition and 37 years after Schubert's death. Following the premiere of Schubert's B minor symphony, the critic Eduard Hanslick, famous for his bitchiness and conservatism, wrote this, quote, The tonal beauty of the two movements is fascinating. Schubert achieves with the most simple basic orchestra tonal effects which no refinement of Wagnerian instrumentation can capture. This symphonic fragment can be counted among Schubert's most beautiful instrumental works." Unquote. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.